Today's scripture reading will be in the book of Genesis, chapter 35, verses 1 through 8. Then God said to Jacob, Get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob told everyone in the household, Get rid of all of your pagan idols, purify yourselves, and put on clean clothing. We are now going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all of their pagan idols in earrings, and he buried them under the great tree near Shechem. As they set out, a terror from God spread over the people in all the towns of that area, so no one attacked Jacob's family. Eventually, Jacob and his household arrived at Luz, also called Bethel, in Canaan. I'll probably mess that up. Uh, Jacob built an altar there and named the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel, because God had appeared to him there when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Soon after this, Rebekah's old nurse, Deborah, died. She was buried beneath the oak tree in the valley below Bethel. Ever since, the tree has been called Alon Bakuth, which means Oak of Weeping. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Streebeck. Well, as we wrap up the story of Jacob... I uh, was reminded of reading the story of Jacob and kind of as he got towards of, toward the end of his life, it reminded me of another story that I love uh, called Lonesome Dove. And Lonesome Dove is uh, a masterpiece, really. Larry McMurtry, many of you know the story or you've seen the miniseries. Uh, but this, this book, this story uh, is a story that captures so much of the breadth of human experience. And one of the scenes that is the most moving scene uh, to me in, in, the, in the story of Lonesome Dove is, you know, to make a long story short, you have this rugged ex-Texas Ranger, Captain William Call, who's played by uh, Tommy Lee Jones in the miniseries. And he has a very strong relationship with a scout that's been with him for years when they were Rangers and working the Army. And now as they're on this cattle drive, they have the same scout. His name is Dietz. All we ever hear about him is Dietz. And he's played by Danny Glover in, in the movie. But uh, the, the story, as you read it, it gets to this point in the story where they're, they're almost to Montana, where it, which is their destination, and Dietz is killed. And it's kind of an accidental thing. It's a misunderstanding. And so they, uh, anyways, they're, they're left with the task of burying old Dietz. And so they bury Dietz. And, and the way that the story reads... Uh, everyone, everyone expected, you know, that they would just bury Dietz in the morning and then they would go on with the cattle drive because that's what Call always did because he was a business first guy. You know, we don't have time to sit around and do all this stuff. We bury the dead and we move on. And, uh, and the scene is such that, that William Call, he's unable to move on. He makes a choice instead. After they bury Dietz, he spends the entire rest of the day at Dietz's grave. 
And it's just this moving, beautiful thing. And, and then a little after, after a little while, we sit in there at the grave. He takes a hammer and he knocks a board off the side of their wagon. And on that board, he begins to inscribe something with his knife. And it kind of reminds me of that scene in John's gospel where Jesus bends down and begins to ride in the dirt. And everybody wonders what he's writing or what significance of that he's writing. Well, all the cowboys and everybody are wondering what in the world is taking calls so long. He's over there writing on a board and he's been doing it all day. You know, they're going, Deet's name is not that long. You know, this shouldn't be taking this long. But they realize this, this act of devotion, it's an act of mourning. And so Call spends the entire day there mourning over Deets. And when they finally figured out what he was writing, they walked over and this is what it said. Captain Call had carved the words deeply into the rough board so that the wind and sand couldn't quickly rub them out. Josh Deets served with me 30 years, fought in 21 engagements with the Comanche and the Kiowa, cheerful in all weathers, Never shirked a task. Splendid behavior. So if you know the character that Tommy Lee Jones plays, you'll understand how, how wordy that is to say that much about someone that he loved. You know, Jacob, he comes home to Bethel. And this is a new home for Jacob. He's been on a wagon train of his own, really for the better part of his life. His whole adult life, really, he's been running from the fear of his brother Esau, and he finally settles in this place called Bethel. He has experience here with God. Bethel just means the house of God. That's where God has met Jacob. And at this point in the story, God has wrestled with Jacob. He's changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Jacob realizes that, in fact, even though he swindled and cheated and lied and used the Lord's name in vain in front of his brother and his dad and everything else, he's still going to be the carrier of God's promises to the world that God loves. And so this all begins to take shape and happen in the country of this Bethel place, which is not Jacob's first home. This is not his hometown, but this is his new home, and this becomes home. And so Jacob comes home in a way to this place called Bethel, and God sends him back there. And this is the place where God meets Jacob in his distress. And just previous to this little moment in the story, we see Esau and Jacob have this moment of reconciliation where Jacob expects Esau to come at him with a sword and try to kill him and his family, and instead he greets him with a kiss, and he falls on him, and he weeps, uh, and they weep together, and there's this beautiful reunion. So Jacob has a new name, Israel. He has a new connection with his brother. Things are being restored, and Jacob has a new home, Bethel. And so it's time for Jacob's people, our people, the people of God, to find new life. And so Jacob leads them through this period of consecration or purification where he invites them. He says, now, this is the moment where we're going to journey on and we're going to choose that we're going to follow this particular God, the God of Israel. This is our God, not all these other gods. So I want you to leave all your other gods that you've hung on to, all the little things that you've rattled and prayed to just to try to get one extra thing done. We're gonna leave all those here. We're going we're gonna to leave those behind. We're going to put away all the foreign gods. And they change their clothes. And as symbolic of going in a new way and living for a new God, we're going to change our clothes. And so they were essentially leaving all the evil behind them. And then they build an altar in this place, a sacred place, where they remember that God has been faithful thus far to his promises. It's fascinating to think about how close in the, this type of movement is to our movement in the New Testament when we begin to hear this baptismal language in the New Testament. 
right? Cast off every sin that so easily entangles. Put off the old life. Set aside your old ways in order to take up the new ways. And so this is what happens when we go through the waters of baptism. In fact, in the old, old days, we actually, you know, we would change clothes right then and there. You'd leave your clothes on one side of the baptismal, you'd walk through and some steps, and you'd put on new clothes on the other side. And uh, for many good reasons, we don't do that anymore. But, um, but it's, it's, you know, you get new clothes when you come into the church. When you become a member of the church, you get new clothes. And it's, it was this beautiful picture. And so they all change clothes. They say goodbye to evil. And they lay aside the old life. And they pick up the new life. Even with all of this putting off and taking up and all the new life, there's actually even a, a, great, a great part of the story where Jacob gets to welcome his, his 12th son. And you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, the last one finally comes along in this new place. His name's Benjamin. So Jacob has this joy for this son that's given to him in his old age. But as the ancient funeral liturgy reminds us, in the midst of life, we are surrounded by death. Jacob, in the midst of all this newness of life, has to turn his attention to the burial of the dead. First, he has to bury Deborah. Deborah is the character that made me think of Josh Dietz in the Lonesome Dove story because they're just an overlooked character in the story. But Deborah is mentioned by name here and was Rebecca's nurse. Now remember, Jacob hasn't seen his mother since he left home. I mean, he has not seen her in all these years. His only living connection to her is her nurse, Deborah, and now she dies. And Jacob has to bury her. So she gets this dignity, a burial there under an oak tree at Bethel. They rename the tree in honor of her. And this is a link. And then Jacob has to bury Rachel. This is Jacob's treasured relationship, this beautiful woman that he's longed for and married and raised children with. And she dies giving birth to Benjamin. So he sets up a pillar and mourns in memory of Rachel. And finally, all in this same little section of the story, Jacob is tasked with burying his father Isaac. Next to, uh, excuse me, next to Rachel, this is his most treasured relationship. And so the time comes to bury his father Isaac, who was already old when he, you know, cheated Esau out of his birthright and blessing and all that stuff. But now he breathed his last, and Genesis tells us that he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And listen to this little detail. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Now, what are the chances when Esau and Jacob are fighting at each other and Jacob is stealing the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau? What are the chances that when Isaac dies... They'll work together to bury their father. Not very good likelihood, right? If things just go according to plan, one of them's going to kill the other one. It's just whoever gets there first. And so we see this great reconciliation piece in the story. Esau's name is even mentioned first, which I think is significant, that the older son who was cheated out of his birthright and his blessing, he gets a, a, a place of dignity at the burial of Isaac. So there they are working together. And the sting of Jacob's deceit of his theft, of his heel grabbing, seems to have been removed. The wound that was caused by his behavior seems to have been healed. It's such an outstanding, moving story. And after all that, we get this little editorial detail, and Israel journeyed on. 
Jacob used to be Jacob. Now he's Israel. He journeyed on, right? That in the midst of all of this stuff that he's having to do, he journeyed on. And that's what we do. We journey on as the people of God. In the midst of life, we are surrounded by death. We celebrate birth. We mourn death. We celebrate baptisms, and we mourn at funerals. We mourn together when we have sorrow, when people around us are suffering, and we celebrate together when people around us are experiencing joy. This is what we do. If you think about the, the festivals, the feasts that we have, the, the major events in the church's life of baptism and funeral, that's why we make such a big fuss out of baptisms. And this is one of the reasons why we, the church is always invited and why we don't do our baptisms if we can help it out somewhere else. But we, we want to make sure that the people of God are gathered because it's our job to be present at those events and we promise to take care of those people because they're becoming family members of the church. It's not just an individual thing between a person and God, but it's a community reality. So when a person becomes a member of the church, the whole church signs off on taking care of that person. And so that's what's happening in the baptism. And in a funeral, it's that one last worship service where we not only say goodbye to this person, but we sort of accompany them with singing. We send them home. We sing together, we pray together, and this is the time where we commend them to God. And we recognize that we will continue our practices of worship and abiding according to the word of God. And that's, that's what we do at a funeral. That's why the church is always invited. We gather and we have that one last worship service with that person and we send them on to the church triumphant. This is one of the reasons that the bereavement committee is one of the most important committees you can ever serve on. Because this is the time when families, when we're grieving, when we don't need words, we don't need a lot of words, we just need people that are there. We just need people to show up and smile at us and bring us some chocolate cake. You know, that's, that's what we need in those moments of burial and moving forward. And so we journey on as the people of God. We sign up for a life of rejoicing and mourning. And it would be so nice if we could just have seasons that were just rejoicing and no mourning. And then we had seasons that were just mourning and no rejoicing. But you all know when you live in community, it's going to be both of them simultaneously. Almost always we're mourning something and we're celebrating something. Any given day of the week, we're celebrating with one group, one family, one Sunday school class, and we're mourning with another. And this is just part of the practice that we learn as the church. This is how we are present to, to one another. So I want to take a few moments to just consider how the church, how the community of God's people can navigate these rhythms. Ecclesiastes tells us famously, and the birds, you know, made that famous, that, that in, in, there's a season for everything in life. There is a time to be born. There is a time where we will die. How then do we live well in the midst of death? And how do we die well in the midst of life? I have learned from the funeral liturgy over the last couple of decades that what we attempt to do through readings and songs and sermons anytime we gather for a funeral is to preach the gospel in the face of death to preach the gospel in the face of death and sometimes we do this with words and other times we do it with other acts of worship and love it is important for us to cultivate a healthy relationship to death which is very challenging but, you know, children are some of our best guides at this. And as we walk together and learn, it's good to bring them along or sometimes let them bring us along. This is best discovered among community 
and it's best discovered while we're alive and while we're healthy. That's the time to talk about death, to establish a healthy relationship with death. And so I'd just like to offer, just kind of reflecting on a passage that I'll read in a moment from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that there are two ways to miss a healthy relationship to death in the church, at least two ways. There's probably more, but there's two ways I can think of that we miss having a healthy relationship to death together as the church. And both of them, either, either route that we take will prevent us from talking about death, which of course makes it harder to relate to death well. So the first error that I see and that we see together is that we sometimes will deny death as an enemy at all. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is the final enemy. But sometimes we live and try to operate through life as though death is not a real enemy at all. This is where the language like, oh, just move on. Oh, just get over it. It's only death, right? It's only a threshold. It's only something we pass through. It's just a door. We just go through it. It's just a necessary thing. No big deal. And when we do that, we don't make time for grieving. We don't create practices with community for grieving. But the reality is, and we know this, you know this, that when we sign up to love people, and when we sign up to allow people to love us, that grief is a necessary part of that. When we sign up for love, we sign up for grief. And this is how we make room for love. We grieve the loss, when necessary, of what is good and beautiful. Can't you picture Jesus weeping over Lazarus? Can you picture Jesus weeping in the garden uh, at what he faces? And, and the way that Jesus knows exactly what we feel and lifts that up by quoting psalms, psalms of lament, psalms that express pain. The entire book of Lamentations is a mourning document. It's a lament for the gathered community of God. A second way that we miss a healthy relationship with death, I think, is for fear to be thought of as the last word, where death is just, where there's so much terror surrounding it, where we're just so afraid of death because we think it's the last word that's spoken. There's, that death is the greatest thing. There's nothing beyond death. We, we fear annihilation at that point. We feel like, gosh, if that's all there is, and then when this life's over and there's nothing else, then what happens to me? I mean, what happens to all this beautiful stuff? What happens to all these beautiful people? Surely there's more to life than just these few years we have. And so when we look at death that way, it's problematic. We sometimes fear death in this way, that death is an enemy who at the end of the day we think they win. You know, death wins. We look around and it just seems like death and darkness always wins. That's all we see and that's the final word. And so as Christians, when we gather and worship together and we hear the stories of God and we celebrate and we sing together, we remember, especially, especially when we gather on Easter Sunday, we remember that God's final word to death and suffering, God's final word to the enemy that is death, is simply an action. It's the resurrection of the Son of God. It's the raising of the dead, His beloved Son. It's so important to cultivate this healthy relationship with death in part because this is what informs our lives now. 
if we have a healthy relationship with death and we put that in perspective and we hear enough of the gospel in the face of death, then it helps shape our lives and our practices now. And I think that's what Paul's getting at when he's celebrating this great story that even though Christ has died, the good news on the third day is that Christ is risen. And then the good news from there is that Christ will come again. And when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, that's when all of this stuff is put right. And death, we realize, was not indeed a great enemy at all. Though the final enemy is not an enemy that wins. I'd like to read from this great chapter in closing. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and this is our song, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.